This podcast is brought to you by the film Ezra from Bleecker Street, directed by Tony Goldwyn with an incredible ensemble that includes Robert De Niro, Bobby Cannavale, and Whoopi Goldberg. Ezra is a funny and endearing story about Max, a divorced father struggling to co-parent his autistic son, Ezra. When faced with difficult decisions about the future, they embark on a cross-country road trip that has a transcendent impact on both their lives. Deadline calls Ezra a touching testament to the power of love. In theaters May 31st. Pampers Cruisers 360 is the must-have diaper to help keep your baby from taking it right off, which, if you've experienced this, can lead to complete chaos. With its 360-degree stretchy waistband that moves with your baby for a comfortable fit, your active baby can move freely. Think of it as baby yoga pants. Cruisers 360 offers a gap-free fit and has a blowout barrier at the back of the diaper to help stop any unwanted disasters. The best part? That stretchy waistband makes it so easy to change your wiggly baby who is always on the move and can't be stopped. Just rip the sides to remove and roll it up with the disposal tape on the back. Voila! Pampers Cruisers are available in sizes 3 to 7 and now feature fun new prints. Pair with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes, made from 100% plant-based cloth that grips the mess without fear of tearing. With Free and Gentle, mess meets its match. For trusted protection, trust Pampers the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hi, this is Laura Vanderkam. I'm a mother of five, an author, journalist, and speaker. And this is Sarah Hart Unger. I'm a mother of three, a practicing physician, and blogger on the side. We are two working parents who love our careers and our families. Welcome to Best of Both Worlds. Here we talk about how real women manage work, family, and time for fun. From figuring out childcare to mapping out long-term career goals, We want you to get the most out of life. Welcome to Best of Both Worlds. This is Laura. This is episode 228, which is airing in mid-December of 2021. I'm going to be interviewing Jennifer Barrett, who is the author of Think Like a Breadwinner, which is a great book about how women in particular can change their mindset about money. So speaking of money going out the door at the moment... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Sarah, you as we're recording this, you are in the middle of eight days of gift giving. <laughs> How's that going? We're surviving. We're keeping up, barely. <laughs> yeah, our, I think neither my husband and I were, were just excited about buying a lot of stuff right now. But so far, our kids seem to be, their souls haven't been crushed yet. They've gotten at least something every night. And we've got a few nights left. We're going to make it. What about you? Are, are all the presents like wrapped and ready? They are not wrapped and ready, but most of them have been purchased, including for the majority of my extended family. I took advantage of a particular Black Friday sale. I did not buy many things on Black Friday because I'm, you know, I'm not a big fan of, I've learned like sales are about getting you to buy things that on the margins you wouldn't. 
And so the only reason a sale is a good deal for you is if it's something that you would have paid full price for, and then you find out that there is a discount, right? So that was actually what I went for. It's something I had been looking at giving everyone anyway. And then I saw the email. I was like, oh, entire site, 25% off. I'm like, okay, I will buy it today because that was what I was planning on doing. So that I did. But, you know, I, I'm with you. Yeah, we've been trying to minimize some of the stuff like as we move because it all has to be packed up. But, you know, with five kids, it's impossible. And we recently had, you know, we're going to actually wind up doing even more gifts, which I need to like get my head around. I had thought, okay, five kids. Well, even the four older ones, we're going to do a secret Santa gift exchange for them, right? Because some people had been interested in repeating the sibling gift giving thing that we had started, you know, a year or two ago that everyone buys a present for their siblings. But if you think about the sheer volume, like each of five kids buying four other presents, you know, or even the four older kids buying, it just is a lot of gifts, right? And so I was like, okay, the four of you older ones, We'll draw a name out of a hat. We'll do a secret Santa. It was just like every single bad sibling dynamic that exists in our house was exacerbated by this experience. So within 24 hours, everyone knew who everyone had. Like there had been screaming about how people weren't going to do a good job. There was sadness because one person was more into this idea than other people. And so, you know, there was accusations of, you know, people not making good holiday decisions. And, you know, it's just like, so we decided, okay, we're going to go back to everybody getting something for everything. And I'm just going to make my peace with the fact that this is like 20, 20 small If Henry's things. buying gifts. <laughs> yes. Is Henry buying gifts? I mean, they're going to buy for him. So I don't, I you know, I need to confirm with them what they think of this because I would have to then do it, obviously, or Michael would have to do it. So possibly that we shouldn't, but I think they want to buy gifts for him, right? So Maybe it could be sibling Christmas and that's it. That's it. <laughs> well, you should tell that to my gift closet because I've already done. No, I'm really excited about some of this stuff. I mean, I wrote on my blog recently about um, Cameo, this uh, service where you can get celebrities to record greetings to people, personalized greetings to people for for a fee. And it hits a sweet spot in our particular family because I have a child who is really into Survivor. And as you might imagine, there is a cornucopia of former Survivor contestants on, on Cameo. So so that kind of solved that problem pretty quickly. But uh, yeah, we're figuring stuff out. It's going to be a good Christmas. But uh, yes, kind of it, inevitably it's expensive. <laughs> so pivoting, sorry, to breadwinners, like what comes to your mind, Sarah, when, when I say that term? Well, I was surprised. I want you to talk about what you thought when you were a kid about breadwinners, because I was a little bit like, huh, about what you wrote. Well, I'm just curious with you, because I mean, you went and got a medical degree, which is a, you know, responsible thing for someone to do who might be looking to support a family financially. So did you have that as a message that you should be a physician because it is a higher earning sort of thing? I mean, was it totally just like, you know, you you wanted to do it and you can uh, I don't think earnings had much to do with my choice. Maybe a little bit of the prestige factor. I don't mean prestige as a career, but more like I want to show you that I can do this. I think, you know, when I was growing up, two of my good friends, well, I'm not as 
I don't know, actually not in touch with one of them anymore, but like they were both going to go to med school and I never felt like as academically strong as them. But then I was like, you know what? I'm going to go to med school too. And then we actually all did go to med school and uh, I think are all pretty happy with our choices to do so. I don't think, I didn't have much thought at all about my future family structure. I don't know. I, I don't, I didn't, when I applied to MD-PhD programs, it didn't even occur to me how old I would be when I had kids. Like I wasn't capable or maybe I had a little bit of stubbornness that like I shouldn't think of what my family structure would look like because that's not a feminist thing to do. So to just blindly go ahead and do what seemed like a good career. So I didn't think about it. I mean, when I was growing up, my my mother worked, but my father was definitely like the, our household breadwinner. And I don't know, I, I'm still not, I guess, I'm not a breadwinner in our in our house defined by like the majority earnings, but I still contribute a very significant chunk. I mean, we would not be able to save and live in the manner that we, we do if I was staying home because... I mean, I'm not going to give specific numbers, but like it's closer to like a 60-40 split, not like a 90-10 split or something like that. And nothing wrong with that if, you know, that makes some other household happy. But, you know, I feel like I make a significant contribution, <laughs> I'll put it that way. And so I I haven't actually even had a lot of thoughts about like my husband being, quote unquote, the breadwinner either. So, yeah, I'm super interested in this interview. <laughs> well, Yeah. I mean, you could and you could support a family well on your own. I mean, that's the, you know, with. So, yeah, it's sort of a different question when you get to, to that point. It's funny because I've been thinking about this, too, ever since I read Jennifer's book um, many months ago. But, you know, long before we we had her on here. But I don't I definitely did not grow up thinking that I would ever be responsible for supporting a family with what I earned. And I'm trying to figure out why, because it's not like my parents ever said that to me, like, you know, oh, you know, you're a girl, so your job won't matter. I mean, that's, that's, they would never, ever, ever have said something like that. And yet it's definitely not a thought that I had that, you know, whatever I do, I need to be able to, you know, whatever financial goals I have, I would need to be personally responsible for making them. Now, I will say that I, you know, I feel like I, do very well. I mean, I could also support a family pretty well on my own if I were doing so. But it's funny because I think if I had had that thought, I might not have pursued writing as a career because again, that doesn't seem like a very responsible thing to do if you are going to be a um, a breadwinner. And so, you know, fortunately it has, it has worked out just fine and not just through the writing. I mean, things like, you know, having another podcast, for instance, in the professional speaking circuit, that's obviously all of that is as, as big a chunk or more of what I do. But it, it yeah, it's, it's just funny to think about that. You know, I've had to probably learn to be more, you know, proactive about choosing, you know, to earn more money and stuff like that. I wonder if it was part of the generational zeitgeist that you just weren't supposed to, like, think about it. I would love to talk to a, I don't know, my husband, or he's a little bit older, but somebody of very similar, like geriatric millennial <laughs> age group, and find out whether if they were male, did they like think about these practical things? Because I just felt like there was such an air of like, follow your dreams, like, don't think about money, don't worry about it, just do what you what you feel called to do. And that that kind of prevented some of that practical thinking, which I actually think is valuable and people do a lot more of now. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think still a lot of 
young men grow up thinking more about the money because they don't get to assume that there will be somebody else earning money, even though, again, in most families, there are. So they may not have that built-in assumption. And so they think more about the economic returns on different careers. But again, many of them are not thinking about career gaps and like their child rearing timetable and all that sort of thing too. So yeah, it's just, you know, it's interesting, even how we are in 2022 or 2021 still for a few more weeks, but, you know, people are still, you think of yourself as growing up in a fairly progressive household, you may still absorb these sort of larger cultural messages, which it's interesting to see, like, what are my kids absorbing? I don't know. I mean, they definitely see that both of us work and take our careers seriously. I think my children actually at one point, like, thought I out-earned Michael, which I don't. (laughs) But I guess they have not absorbed a message that um, is, you know, that that's the way it naturally goes with gender. All right. Well, let's hear what Jennifer has to say about all this. Well, I'm so excited to be here with Jennifer Barrett, who is the author of Think Like a Breadwinner and is now newly the head of content at Fidelity. So Jennifer, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your career journey and your family as well? Sure. So, um, well, most of my career has been in in media. And uh, I came to New York back in 2000 as a, the foreign exchange reporter for Dow Jones and the Wall Street Journal. So that was my first foray into financial journalism. And since then, uh, I've bounced around a bit. I worked at Newsweek for a while. I worked at uh, Hearst and NBC and then CNBC. And then I took a job at Acorns, which is the, the saving and investing app. And I was chief education officer there for about five years before I took this role at Fidelity this summer. So most of my career has been media. And then I moved into financial services more recently. And for the best 12 years or so, I've been in in management. And I took that turn when I had my second child. So that was a very interesting period of my life. (laughs) It was incredibly busy where I, I felt like my responsibilities at work and my income grew uh, dramatically at the same time that my responsibilities at home grew with a second young child at home. And so how old are your kids now? So they're now 11 and 14. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. So middle Two school <laughs> middle school years, roughly, is that? Middle school and high school. My oldest is a sophomore. Uh, the cutoff okay. is yeah December 31st in New York City. And so he's on the younger end of his grade. Gotcha. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. And so I'm very curious, even obviously your sons are having one experience growing up, but when you were growing up, what were the messages you remember learning about money, the various lessons you learned as, as you were growing up? Do any particularly stand out to you? They do. And I think what's interesting now when I look back is that I grew up in a pretty conventional home in that my father was the solar primary breadwinner for most of my childhood until my parents got divorced. I was in eighth grade then. And so I have a very particular image or had a very particular image of what a breadwinner was. And I think the fact that he was in that role for so much of my childhood kind of informed the way I thought about what my role would be when I became an adult. And Though my mom, after the divorce, you know, she, she was remarried. She launched kind of a second career. She went back and got her MBA, got her doctorate, became a professor, became a consultant, became the person in her marriage that manages all the investments. So she really moved into an almost entirely new role in her second marriage 
but a lot of that happens after my formative years. So I look back now and I can see the influence that she's had on me more recently. But I think when I first entered adulthood, I had these kind of preconceived notions about uh, what my role would be in a marriage. I had, you know, I sort of assumed I'd get married. I assumed that my husband would probably earn more than me. I assumed that he would take the lead when it came to sort of planning for the future and investing our money. And so I operated on that principle. I thought that I was pretty independent if I could cover my own bills, right? And once I got married, I thought, okay, if I'm covering half the bills and the rent, I'm doing okay. If I'm setting aside a little bit in a 401k and I have a little bit of savings, I'm doing okay. And then I had a real wake-up call in my 30s. And that's what really was the genesis of this book was realizing that independence is not about being able to pay the bills, right? Independence is really about building wealth so that you can support yourself and all the things you want in your life. And that distinction became really clear to me in my 30s after we had our first son. Yeah, because you realized that there were things you wanted. And it sort of became clear to you from having read Think Like a Breadwinner, your book, (laughs) that it, your your husband wasn't automatically going to be in the position you know, with mm-hmm. his career choices that he was interested in doing and so forth, wasn't automatically going to be in the position to make those things happen, correct? Yeah. yeah. And I think when we first got together, you know, he was earning more than me. And it was only into our marriage a few years when he was working at a startup that went under, he lost his job and then took him a little while to get his financial footing after that. And I think that's what really started it <laughs> because suddenly my income was more important. And then we had our son. And I talk about this in the book, but there was really one particular moment when I remember we were in a small one-bedroom apartment at the time. We were sharing our bedroom with our toddler. He was about 18 months old. And he woke up in the middle of the night, as they do. And I was up kind of pacing back and forth in our bedroom, trying to get him back to sleep and looking around at our apartment. And in that moment, it really hit me what an unsustainable situation we were in. And you know, the next moment came the realization that I wasn't doing anything to help us get out of that, that that really all these choices that I'd made with my money that I thought were pretty sound were not actually setting me up to have this future that I wanted. And that were really based on a, a very subconscious assumption that my husband would play that role. And so, you know, in that moment, the first thing I thought was, Oh, my God, how vulnerable are you when you know, you are dependent on someone else? to be able to afford the things you want in your life. That was the first feeling. And the second feeling was, what the heck? Right? Because I thought I was really independent. And I had a good career. And I thought I was making a lot of good choices. And so I couldn't really figure out I was like, what is it that informed these choices that I've made with my money that have left me so vulnerable and left all these things that are so important to me, like having a second child, being able to stay in the city that we love, being able to buy a home or even rent a bigger one for our family, that left all those things at stake. And, uh, you know, I started looking back at my own childhood and the assumptions that had come out of my own experience. And I think that's when it really clicked. And so I asked myself, I remember asking myself, like, if I had been raised to think like a breadwinner, if I had been raised to truly believe that I would be fully financially responsible for myself and probably a family too, would that have changed the choices I made with my money? And, you know, obviously the answer was a resounding <laughs> yes. And, and that sort of set me off on, on this path. And then I started talking to other women and I realized that I really wasn't alone in those assumptions and that 
many of us had had these kind of wake up calls where we had been making all these money choices based on the assumption that we would have a partner, that that partner would probably earn more than us, that that partner would take the lead when it came to investing and making some of these financial choices. And then something had happened. Either we didn't get married or we got married, but he or she earned less. You know, whatever the situation was, suddenly we were left in this position where we were questioning all the choices we had made and we were starting to realize that maybe these assumptions we'd had growing up that had informed these choices were wrong. Yeah. Well, we're going to take a quick ad break and then we'll be right back to talk a little bit more about what it actually means to think like a breadwinner. So I am here with Jennifer Barrett, who is the author of Think Like a Breadwinner. And she is sharing, you know, what it means to, in fact, think like a breadwinner. So we're saying, you know, people make lots of good financial choices, right? Like, you know, people might not be in debt, you know, they've, or if they are paying down student loans, they're doing so in a responsible manner. You know, they're not outspending what, what they're bringing in. So how does that differ from thinking like a breadwinner? What is the missing piece of thinking like a breadwinner that's different from just being generally responsible with your money? Sure. I think thinking like a breadwinner really starts with asking, what do I want in my life? And what are the choices that I need to make with my money and my career in order to afford that life? And it sounds so simple, but it's not a question a lot of us ask ourselves. We don't ask ourselves what we want. And then we don't ask ourselves what we need to do in order to get that <laughs> financially yeah. and professionally. So, and it's really about like making these kinds of choices with your money that will ensure you can take care of yourself throughout your life and maybe others too, that you won't feel like you're dependent on someone else to have the things that are so important to you in your life. Yeah, because when you don't think fundamentally that your family's standard of living is going to be entirely up to you, what sort of different choices do you make? Then, if you do assume that your family's standard of living is highly likely to be entirely up to you. Yeah, I think the big one is investing. But I'll, I'll go back a little bit because I think it's not just, you know, there's this cultural conditioning that we get that sort of reinforces this idea that like for women, it's really about saving and budgeting. You know, we save for these small splurges like a spa getaway or a handbag or something. And then for men, the message is really much different. It's about like how to reach a million, how to save for a house, how to, bu how to buy that sports car you really want. It's much more expansive, but it goes all the way back to childhood. So I think, you know, my own beliefs and choices about money came from my own experience growing up, but I'm not alone, you know, and I looked at the research and, and this research is only from a few years ago. So I had thought that things would be different when, when we became parents. But it's not. And I think it's because we don't talk about a lot of these things. And so these assumptions are perpetuated, even though we know that a record number of women are now in the main or sole breadwinner role for their families. So I think before the pandemic, in almost, no, in just over, sorry, 40% of families with kids under 18, moms were the sole or primary breadwinner. That's a record number. It's a paradigm shift in the breadwinning model. Um, but we're lagging culturally. So the, the messaging hasn't quite caught up to the reality. And it starts back in childhood where parents are more likely to talk to their girls about budgeting, about saving money. And they're more likely to talk to their boys about building credits and investing to build wealth. And 
you know, all of those skills are critical, as you alluded to just a minute ago. But there's a really big gap for girls and for women when it comes to both building credit and building wealth. And the pervasive prescription for us is still like, have a rainy day fund and save for retirement. And you should be fine. And that's, that's actually not adequate for most of us when we think about all the things we want in our lives, right? Because there are decades between whatever your short-term savings goal is and your retirement for a lot of people. And you need to invest your money and grow your money in order to be able to afford those things. And that to me is really one of the most striking differences between the messaging for men and women. And we see that play out in the numbers, right? Women still, even though there's been a surge of female investors, and I love it in the last six months, we still see that men overall invest earlier and invest more than women. So women are, are very often playing catch up later in life. And we're missing out on the one factor that has the biggest impact on how much money we'll be able to have at the end of our career or whenever we need that money after we've invested it. And that is time. Time is the greatest factor because your money will compound. You know, the interest that you earn will earn interest and so on and so on. And, you know, in order to really benefit from that, you need to have your money invested for a long time. So the fact that we start investing later really puts us at a huge disadvantage. And we see that when you look at the research around wealth, single women have 32% of the wealth that single men have. So we talk about the wage gap, but the wealth gap is even bigger. And it has a bigger impact on our lives. And so one of the big messages that I push for is like, from the get go, start thinking about how you can build wealth, how you can build credit to build wealth, right? Because you have to have good credit, for example, to get a mortgage to buy a home. And that is one of the single greatest sources of wealth for most households. And I talk about thinking about your paycheck as an opportunity to start building wealth. So from the first paycheck you get, use every paycheck to be less dependent on your next paycheck by socking away, you know, 15 to 20% into savings and investing and not just for retirement. Yeah. And I imagine that this, this difference in how people approach life too, it plays out in, in careers as mm-hmm. well, in terms of career choices, um, in terms of, you know, what we think of as, as a good career. Um, you know, I know a lot of women care more about, about the balance per se than, than necessarily the paycheck, right? We, we mm-hmm. encounter that all the time. It's like, you know, that's the question. And I, you know, I, I wanted to bring up, I, I heard you on the How to Money podcast with Joel and Matt. They've actually been guests on the show as well. They're and great. Best of both worlds. Yeah, they're great. <laughs> yeah. But I remember Joel saying something a couple of years ago on the podcast that he, um, you know, it had been important for him for his, you know, wife to not have to work if she didn't want to mm-hmm. for pay. And so since he knew he was going into radio, which is not the world's, you know, it's not investment banking, <laughs> he had been thinking about from the get-go about things like, you know, buying rental properties and mm-hmm. all this, so that even in a lower paying career, he would have enough income to support a family. And it was like that clear mindset. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've ever heard a woman say something like that, yeah. right? That like, I'm considering a lower paid career. And so since I need to be you know, responsible for a family, so my spouse doesn't need to work if he or she doesn't want to, I need to also be thinking about ways to supplement it. I'm sure you have seen this a lot as well. Yeah. And I 100% agree is that, you know, if we want to pick a career that pays less, why not look for other opportunities to earn money? I mean, whether it's a side gig or it's passive income, I, 
I talk about a woman in my book who actually was uh, had a huge impact on the you know this book happening at all, and and I realized in conversations with her because she did think differently, and that's sort of the like the second light bulb that went off was in talking to her after I'd had my own wake up call and realizing that she thought very differently. She just I'll just give you the quick story on her. She was married quite young and her husband died in a car accident when she was 26. They had a son who was two. At the time, her husband brought in 60% of the income. She was in a more like traditional arrangement. She suddenly became obviously the sole provider for her family. She got this insurance settlement. It wasn't huge. And one day we were talking about it and I said, Oh, so did you use some of it to supplement your income? And you know, while you got back on your feet and she just looked at me <laughs> like I had three heads and she said, Oh, I would never touch that money for that. No, no, no. That wasn't my, my regular income. She said, I invested that money. I bought a property and then I started renting it out. She said, because I knew that that money was going to, to go toward our future. And I just in that moment thought, who thinks like that? First of all, at 26. But what woman is thinking that way, where she immediately thought, no, I have to learn to live on less. And then she switched career paths so that she would earn more. She just cut back on their expenses in the meantime. And so I started talking to her about where that came from. And it turned out that her she was one of three daughters. She was the oldest. And her dad had sort of raised her like a breadwinner. He had said to her, you need to be able to stand on your own. He had taught her how to invest very early on. He owned investment properties. And so he sort of passed on his knowledge to her. And that was so unusual, but it's a perfect example of thinking like a breadwinner. And the result is, I mean, years later, she sold that place and it, she had enough money from that to buy an apartment in New York when she moved to New York with her son and got a job here. And then over time, she bought another property and she used that property to pay for his college. So I mean, and now she started her own company, but she's been making these choices all along the way that are very similar to what you talk about, where she said, I'm going to need to be building wealth on the side because my income alone may not always be enough to support this future that I want to support my son in the way that I want to. Whether or not she found a partner, I don't think she would have made different choices, to be honest, because I think she was just thinking that way, where she thought, I'm always going to need to have something on the side. And it doesn't need to take a lot of time, you know, investing in real estate, investing in the stock market, picking up you know, a side hustle here or there for a little extra money that you then put to work for you. It just gives you so much freedom. It gives you so much choice. It really gives you so much power over your future. Whether or not you find a partner or not, you have the confidence to know that you can afford the future you want. And I think that's a crucial distinction. Yeah. And it sounds like that father was teaching his daughter great lessons. Oh, so great. I wonder <laughs> if you can maybe talk a little bit about that. Like what lessons should our listeners be teaching our daughters, because I think sure. those are the ones who are were perhaps not conveying these messages as much as others. And then also, you know, what we should be teaching our sons too. Sure. Well, I can talk about, you know, the lessons that he had taught her, he had her split her money into different piles, basically, when she got her allowance. So very early on, she had uh, spending money, she had saving money, and then she had what was the equivalent basically of investing where she would save for longer term goals. And when she was old enough, she started investing that money. So very early on, she got in the habit of when money came in, she immediately put at least 20%, maybe more into saving and investing. And that just carried over when she got her first paycheck. And her dad, I, I will never forget this. He's passed recently. But she said every time they talked, he always asked her not what she made, but how much she saved. He never asked her what her income was. He always said to her, how much are you saving? How much are you investing? 
put the emphasis on that. And I think that's so important. And I go back to the same thing I say, which is like, use every paycheck as an opportunity to be less dependent on your next paycheck, because that's how you have real freedom. That's how you have real independence and choice. You know, when I was growing up, I will say the, the one piece of advice that I had forgotten to mention earlier was that my dad had what he called a go to hell fund. And he told me about and when he first mentioned it, I was like, Oh, that's kind of an interesting concept. And, and it was only later when I was an adult and kind of came back and started talking to him about it that I really understood how important it was. And he had had a really bad job at one point and felt like he was so dependent on his paycheck that he didn't have, you know, he, he really didn't have the choice to leave. And so he vowed pretty early on that he would never be in a situation like that again. And that's when he really started saving and investing. And so the go to health fund really was like, can I build up enough money on the side so I know I can always walk away, whether it's a bad relationship, or a bad work situation, whatever it is. I think now that was an incredible lesson didn't quite sink in at the time, but but certainly took it to heart later. But I think when we're talking to our girls, you know, we can be really conscious about the fact like there's still a tendency to sort of take our girls shopping with us, grocery shopping, clothes shopping, not our sons. And there's a tendency if you're going to open an investment account, there's a tendency to open it for your son first and to think about that. Now, I think this is all changing. And I, I know these are generalizations. But, you know, if you look at the research, this is this is still happening, where we sort of naturally fall into these assumptions uh, about our sons and daughters and the skills that they'll need to succeed as adults. And so I say one of the greatest things that you can do is teach your girls and your boys really early on the importance on, of living on less than they earn and saving and investing that difference from the get go. Yeah. And I mean, it seems like, you know, the just thinking about the whole career aspect of it. I, I know I keep coming back to this, but especially, you know, if people do wind up in families that are mildly more traditional, you know, children do absorb what they see. And so if you are in a situation where mom has, let's say, dialed down or just sort of has a less intense career than, than dad does and all that, how do you make sure that your daughters and, and to your sons still absorb the lesson that any of them might need to be the one who is supporting the family, right? That the norm is not necessarily that dad is the one who does this. Exactly. And, you know, everyone needs to make the choices that are right for their family. And I do say, even though I've been the main breadwinner in my family for about 12 years, really at any moment that could change, right? I could lose my job. My husband could get a raise. I mean, it's, you know, it's less about whether you're the person actually earning most of the income in your household and more about thinking individually and thinking as a team about how you are going to invest and save your money and use the money that you're making in a way that allows you to have the future you want. It all really comes back to that. And so I think if you are a woman and you decide to step back, and I know that that's been the case for a lot of women in the pandemic, and we haven't talked about this, but really, there still is so much more pressure on women to be the primary caregiver than men. We just feel, I mean, in our culture, that's just the case right now. And so women feel that much more deeply, I think. And, and the pandemic has put a lot of women in a really terrible situation where we're forced to choose between trying to take care of our kids, especially when they were at home and we were trying to school them. We were playing all these different roles and then also do our job. And, and it proves to be just impossible sometimes. And I'm, I'm really sympathetic to that. It's been a difficult year for us. And we have older children. So I can only imagine, you know, with younger children, how it is. But I think you can still sort of convey the message that, you know, you should be involved, number one, in the finances, whether or not you're earning more or less, or if you've taken a break from your career, you know, whatever, whatever situation you're in, the most important thing is to be actively involved in the finances to know 
where the money is going and why to be able to talk about it. I think it's important to talk openly with your kids. You know, if you say like, if you're taking a break from your career, you can talk to your kids about that and talk about why, you know, mommy is staying home for or daddy is staying home for a little while. And here's why. And it doesn't mean that I don't want to go back and work later just means that this is the best thing for our family right now. And so kids pick up so much more. I don't need to tell you this, I'm sure, but kids pick up so much more than we give them credit for. I talk to my kids now, they have such an interesting perception of like, (laughs) my involvement and my husband's involvement, I used to feel so guilty about not being at everything. And they really have no memory of so many of those things. Like they they remember certain experiences that we share, but they don't remember if you were at like every single soccer game or if you picked them up every single day from school. And so it is sort of on the one hand important to remember that, you know, that our kids aren't going to remember every single thing in terms of how present we were in every one of their activities or picking them up from school. But they do remember whether we were present for them, whether we were listening to them, whether we were creating those experiences for them. And then also, you know, that they'll pick up so much from just watching us, as you said. And so if you want to make sure that your kids are getting the right impression, and that you're giving them the right lessons, sometimes you literally just have to sit down and talk to them, because otherwise, they might make assumptions that aren't correct. Yeah. And talk through your various uh, career choices, talk through your money choices. I would imagine that, you know, part of people are listening to this like, well, I'm in my career, I earn what I earn or whatever. But but that's not said. I mean, you made a career change. And so but even if you don't make a career change, I mean, what are some things you can do practically to sort of be in more of that breadwinner mindset as as you go about, you know, building your career? Well, I think one of the most important things is to advocate for yourself. And I say that as someone who learned my lesson the hard way. You know, I I talked about this in the book too, but I I was working at Newsweek. It was my dream job. I never really negotiated my salary. I never really negotiated my job um, raises, my pay raises. And I was there for seven years. I think I got three promotions and I got very little in terms of a pay increase over that time. And when I came back from maternity leave with my first son after about, you know, over six years there, I learned that someone else with just a few years more experience was making about 50, 50% more than I was. And that was like a sucker punch. I just remember, I remember crying <laughs> about it and feeling really like I'd been betrayed by this employer. I'd been so loyal. And what did I do wrong? And I had a real moment of reckoning there. And I realized that like, I'd been so happy in my job. And I hadn't really thought about how critical my income was, or how much of a difference it makes when you know, even $5,000 more a year, how that there's like this, you know, this exponential effect over time, because all of your raises are based on your base. And so even if you can negotiate 5000 more, it can make a bigger difference over time. And so I sort of vowed in that moment, like I would never do that again. And, and that became, you know, a real impetus for for me taking charge going forward of, you know, all the, the conversations around my salary, I was a much better advocate for myself. Um, I also did a lot more market research. And I started to look at what are my skills worth in the market. And obviously, I found I found out I was vastly underpaid, <laughs> sort of validated what I just learned. Um, but I, you know, I, I left the company and I ended up freelancing and making quite a bit more that next year, which was validation around my 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 market value. But then I also started thinking a lot more strategically about my career. For me, it was really important to to bring in a bigger salary. And, and you know, in that particular point of time, I wanted to make sure we could get a mortgage. My, my husband was working on contracts. So having a full-time job, making enough to qualify for the mortgage was important. 
So I moved into management. And sometimes those are choices you make, you know, and, and I've been happy. I've been in management for over 12 years. But I'm actually not sure that I ever would have gone that route had I not really been in a situation where I was compelled to start making career and financial choices that would ensure that I would have these things that I really wanted in my life, staying in the city, buying a home, having a second child. And so that really did change the course of my career and the course of my life. And you don't need to make drastic choices. But I think it does come back to number one, advocating for yourself. And number two, thinking strategically about your career. You know, like if you are going into a career that doesn't pay well, as we talked about before, think about how you can earn income on the side if that's the lifestyle that you want, because there are trade-offs. And if it's important to you to earn more money, think about what you enjoy doing and how can you map that against a career that, that pays better. Excellent advice. All right. Well, Jennifer, we always end with a love of the week, which is, you know, just something that we're enjoying this particular week. I guess I could say, I could throw out one for me, the, the How to Money podcast where I heard you, um, because of course I enjoy listening to that. So that's always a great option for any of our listeners who haven't heard that one yet. It is a great podcast. I will cite something that's not financial uh, that we were talking about before we started recording today, which is that I just got my booster. Uh, recently. And my son, my youngest, uh, just turned 11, and he is getting his vaccine as well. And so this is the first time that our entire family is fully vaccinated. And for the first time, I think we can really think about traveling and, and spending more time with our family. And that just brings me so much joy. Wonderful. That's an excellent love of the week. Uh, well, Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us. You can uh, let our listeners know where they can find you. I'm at jenniferbarrett.com. You can read all about me there. And then on social, I'm at jbarrettnyc on Twitter and Instagram. All right. Well, thanks for coming on, Jennifer. Thank you. All right. Well, we are back after hearing from Jennifer Barrett about how to think like a breadwinner. So Sarah, you want to go ahead and read our question, which turns out to be well-matched to this episode. Yes, it does. Okay, she writes, I'm having a troubling situation I'd like to get your advice on. About 10 years ago, my husband and I decided he would quit his job to stay home with our then small children and because we knew we wanted a third child. I am so glad he could provide the care needed for our children, especially when they were babies and toddlers. I have a very flexible job and could work from home or take leave if the children were ever sick and my husband had to work. Now our youngest is seven years old, but my husband does not seem that motivated, able, or open to going back to work. We are working to pay off debt, and even a minimum wage job could help. How could I help my husband understand we really need him to get a job to support our family? I am open to any and all feedback. I suspect you must have some listeners who are working moms married to men who are the stay-at-home parent. Yeah. So this, you know, question, obviously, from a female soul breadwinner, her family, um, it turns out that being a breadwinner is not all fun and games. I think a lot of women who have, you know, done a lot of, you know, the lion's share of the kids stuff, the family stuff, and are managing careers at the same time are sort of like, oh, that sounds like heaven that somebody else is taking care of all of that. But there are definite trade-offs. If you are the sole breadwinner of a family, you are dealing with a situation where, you know, possibly it may be that longer than you anticipated. I imagine that a great many women who have stayed home with their kids have kind of consoled themselves during the hard early years that once the kids were in school, they would have time for their other projects, which may not have all been paid work. 
and that they were going to have more time once they had gotten through these tough early years. And I think they would not be happy if their husbands then said to them, go get a minimum wage job because, you know, I we need you to make money. And the truth is, the jobs you're going to get after 10 years out of the workforce may not be as interesting or as well paid or, you know, exciting as what you would have gotten if you'd stayed in. And so if you choose to be, as you made a family decision to be a sole breadwinner, you may need to consider the reality that you could be that forever. Like that's it. Now, not always, but it could happen. So anyway, just something to keep in mind. Taking a practical approach, the first question, since she is the sole breadwinner, is can she earn more money? I mean, part of being a breadwinner is actually earning enough to support your family. And so if she is not earning enough money, then she needs to look at that. She could maybe try to get promoted with her in her own job, or perhaps she needs to start looking at other jobs. It's a great time to be looking for a job right now. And she doesn't have the same you know, constraints that a lot of people do. Like she might be able to take a job that was less flexible. She might be able to take a job where there was no option to work from home. She might be able to take a job where, you know, she had to travel because, you know, her husband is home with the kids, right? So if they have to, if the school shuts down for three weeks, like he can cover that. She doesn't need to be available for that. And if you give up some of the that flexibility, you might be able to find some higher paying jobs. So I kind of think that's the first thing. Also, because you know, it's really hard to change someone else. <laughs> like you can change yourself. You cannot change someone else. You know, obviously if you're trying to pay off debt, like you guys need to meet as a family and explore all avenues, one of which might be cutting your spending, right? That's certainly one of the things that is an option. I mean, maybe you, it's a big thing. Maybe you go to a smaller house. I mean, again, this might be a good time to sell a house, um, although it's not a good time to buy one. So, you know, you have to figure that out. But the truth is, if she is going to nag him to take a job, it is going to cause a ton of resentment. So the only way he is going to think about doing this is if she follows Dale Carnegie's favorite, famous advice to inspire in him an eager want. Like, namely, he has to think it's his idea and that he wants to do it. So, you know, you can sit down and talk about your finances with just a completely open mind saying, I'm open to all avenues. How are we going to pay off this debt? What do you think we should do? And he might come up with the idea that she gets a different job or they cut back on spending. But maybe one of the ideas he'll come up with is getting a job himself. You just don't know. But I think that's what's going to have to be. And especially if, you know, the budget trims that you guys come up with are pretty unpalatable, like that he might get his head around that idea a lot faster. So that's how it's going to have to happen in my mind. I love that, especially, the you know, the discuss. I think bringing everybody to the table with a non-biased discussion of these, this is our financial picture. This is where we're going to be in 10 years if nothing changes. Like, okay, well, we have saved $0 for retirement and still have debt. What does that look like in 20 years? Do we ever want to retire? Like, what are what does our future look like? Like having that conversation that I mentioned in the beginning of the episode, like I had no forward thinking about family life. Well, now we're old enough. We, we can do that. And I think this person needs to do that with hard numbers and graphs and together figuring out what is the best way to reach our goals? And I agree. It might be, you know, a reduction in spending is is actually, you know, as important. Or perhaps he can think of some way of earning money that is palatable. Like, I don't know, turn a room into an Airbnb and that can be his job. And if you're in a good enough area, maybe that could actually bring in enough income and not be a miserable thing to do. I mean, I just made that up. But like, 
Yeah, I I think this has to be a joint decision. And I also wanted to say that like whenever you get questions like this, uh, or when we get questions like this, my first instinct is to switch the genders of who asks and see if my brain handles it differently, because that will tell us if there's sort of gender bias and like, yes, he should go back to work. Well, would you say the same thing to a woman who had been home in the exact same context? Like, I don't know. I don't know. But it's a very useful exercise. And I think it particularly became salient when you're dealing with family structures that are opposite of how they quote unquote normally are. All right. Well, this has been Best of Both Worlds. We've been talking about thinking like a breadwinner with Jennifer Barrett and our question. Also on somebody who has been thinking like a breadwinner and would like to think less like one. But we will be back next week with more on making work and life fit together. Thanks for listening. You can find me, Sarah, at theshoebox.com or at the underscore shoebox on Instagram. And you can find me, Laura, at lauravandercam.com. This has been the Best of Both Worlds podcast. Please join us next time for more on making work and life work together. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.